Hey there, and welcome to the Social at Cafe podcast. This is a light-hearted educational series fueled by coffee and conversation, where we answer the question, what is social work? So go brew your favorite drink, tell everyone you are doing some professional development, and come join me, Dr. B, in the Social Work Cafe. Welcome, Patrick. It's lovely to have you here. How are you doing? I'm well, Bernadette. How are you? Good. It's um, So everyone who's joining us to listen to this, you're in for a real treat today. <laughs> this is a new conversation for me, one that I, sh- I really, in hindsight, should have got back into a few years ago. I vaguely remember reading about the very first social worker here in Australia, down in Melbourne, being employed by a public library. And I remember kind of coming across this story going, library? What? What are we doing there? What? Mm-hmm. And I kind of left it at that for a few years. Mm-hmm. So fast forwarding to now, it's something that's back on my radar because of my colleagues, Sabine Wardle, Karen Bell, because they are, have become involved in researching and getting student placements set up. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, what the hell is this all about? Yeah. <laughs> and they were so, they met you at a symposium or had you as a guest speaker and mm-hmm. said, you need to talk to Patrick. You just must. So here we are basically we are yes it's been a pleasure getting to know you and meeting you yeah same to you so before we jump into you know social workers and public libraries can you tell us a little bit about your social work background Patrick and then yeah how did you become the first Texan social worker to be employed in a public library sure so I graduated from undergrad in 2005 with double major in philosophy and English so no real wow I was real smart but no real career path yeah (laughs) Anyway, long story short, I did a stint in what we have here in the States called AmeriCorps. It's kind of like Peace Corps, but domestic to the States. I did that for a bit. And then I worked uh, at a residential treatment facility um, for kiddos with emotional disturbances, as they called it back then, for a little bit. But then I fell into working at a, at a bookstore for several oh. years, um, which will come into play here in just a moment, as you can imagine. Anyway, knew that that wasn't forever and eventually went back to school for social work to get my master's at the University of Texas at Austin. And I obtained that in 2012 and then spent a couple of years as a school social worker, which I loved. Yeah, um, cool. I loved that very much. I was in the um, school social work as well. Absolutely loved it. Oh yeah. It was great. The pay, not so much, but. No, no. <laughs> Although that's <laughs> but most of social work, isn't it? <laughs> it is, unfortunately. But the kids were great and I had a lot of fun. Uh, went from there to child welfare and did that for a couple of years and then got an email blast from the career center at the University of Texas and they were advertising a a job at a public library in Georgetown, Texas uh, for a social worker. And so, of course, I was a social worker by that point. I had actually gone to undergraduate school at the university in Georgetown, um, Southwestern University. So I knew the city a little bit. Um, And of course, I had worked in the bookstore for four years. So Mm -hmm. I just felt like I had to apply and got the job and was there for about five years, much like you were saying during your intro. When I first saw the job, I was like, what the hell is library social work? I had never heard of it. You know, I put the word out on social media and basically all, all my social work friends and colleagues 
colleagues said the same thing. I came to find out, of course, I got the job. And over time, I came to find out that I was the first one in the state of Texas and one of the first in the in the United States. The first wave, to my knowledge, was really uh, Leah Escara, who you may know or mm-hmm. have heard of, and San Francisco Public, Alyssa Hardy, who used to work at Denver Public, and Jean Battalamenti, who is still at Washington, D.C. Uh, in my opinion, they were really the first kind of wave. And and uh, I, wow. I kind of came in the second the second wave and was those ladies were kind enough to take me under their wing. Thank God <laughs> when I started, because like I said, like you said, the job was, is a curious one, right? And mm-hmm. not, not a lot of people have heard of it. And so figuring out what it is, what are the best practices, that sort of thing. I mean, we're still working on, on that. I think yeah. we've got, we've got some uh, parameters, I think established, but it's still a very, as you know, a very new practice area. So I'm kind of curious, did you get a sense of like, how did the job come about? Who, who's, you know, other administrators, like who's kind of going, yeah, we need social workers in libraries and what their kind of views of it all was. Yeah. I, I I think my experience was emblematic of most systems or branches that are hiring, helping professionals or bringing them in through one avenue or another. Administration had realized that they had perceived an uptick in people experiencing homelessness, people with mental illness. Um, I, the demographics of, of Georgetown, Texas are, are older. Mm-hmm. Our median age is about 44, 45 due to a really large retirement community of about 15,000 people who live here. It's a city of about 80,000. So it really skews our demographics. And so a lot of our library patrons are older mm-hmm. as well. And so the library had had a history of kind of creative problem solving or or meeting the community's needs. So it had already had this successful history of bringing in, of doing live music and checking out bicycles. And it has a a mobile library that visits people who are unable to, to move around as I am. And so I think that, and it was initially grant funded for three years, Uh, even though this is a conservative community that probably, not probably, definitely was not really on board with kind of social work values. Mm. I think that when the library director went to them and said, I've got this idea, it's free to you, at least for three years, can I give it a try? There was enough goodwill built up to allow that to happen. And so my position was initially grant funded, like I said, for three years by the IMLS, which is the Institute for Museum and Library Science here in the States. I got to kind of sink my teeth in without worrying about you know, their grant running out immediately. And luckily the the city was uh, able to keep me on at the end of that grant. That is a pretty typical way for library social work positions, at least here in the States, to begin. Many of right. them begin being grant funded. Some of them begin with an intern that kind of develops into an employee. And then, and then some are just outright created, you know, the the governing body, whether that's the city or the county or what have you just realizes we need this position and they just create it. But I think if you could track it, the most common way would be the one that I went through with the, with the grant funding. I like your point about like, you've got three years as well. Like you can relax a little bit into the position where you used to, (laughs) particularly here in Australia. Sometimes contracts might only be a year mm-hmm. or two years for, so I'm talking outside of the library world as well. So it's mm-hmm. hard to settle into a position, but it's nice in a way, like three years is at least a good starting point. Mm-hmm. And that story I think resonates with other fields that social workers have been, you know, the first social workers who are pining. Like I, I think when we first met and we were just mm-hmm. chatting and preparing for this, I mentioned school social work. Mm-hmm. We've been, yeah, it's taken like some creative or vision 
visionary principle to notice these social problems and go, hey, you know what? We need social workers. So let's trial mm-hmm. this like with students that have led to employment and it's our experience here, but it's it's definitely grown there. So it's interesting to hear those similarities. It often starts with at least one person creatively problem solving. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting too, you said they were noticing the the people who are coming through the library and their needs. Like when mm-hmm. we think of libraries, we think of books. We don't mm-hmm. think of, um, what did you say? <laughs> people checking out bicycles. Right. <laughs> and we've, I have, we have done that here. I know in our library, they've they seem to have changed a lot over the years. Like we check out, we were checking out lawnmowers at one mm-hmm. point. I don't know if mm-hmm. we're still doing it, but things like that. So something has happened in libraries where they are yeah. changed across yeah. many yeah locations. Yeah, I think that if if folks who are listening haven't been to a public library recently, go check it out. Yes. Um, because, I mean, you hear the things that that we're saying and how much things have changed. You know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that libraries are, are about people, not books. More and more, they're more like community centers, right? They're, yes. There are books there, but there are there's so much more. Yeah. Books are just kind of the, the historic focus of libraries. But I think the ones that are well poised for kind of the future are the ones who are adopting these kind of new roles and, yeah. and, and becoming, as you and I have discussed before, are becoming interdisciplinary um, yes. as well and inviting people like, like me and you in, but who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. musicians and all sorts of different therapy dogs. I mean, you know, the, the opportunities are really endless in a public space like that. In my yes. Opinion. One of my favorite Christmas events at the end of last year was put on by our library. They do story time with children. Like mm-hmm. we were able to take my little toddler niece mm-hmm. where they had games, they had Santa Claus, they had, yeah, you know, and that was put on by the library. It's, mm-hmm. and it was free. Like that's, that didn't happen when I was a kid. So it's amazing. So yeah, going to roles then, what exactly then, are, or what did you do as a social worker and, and, and other social workers in libraries that you're aware of? What are they getting up yeah. to? Yeah, I think, as you can imagine, you know, social work in some ways is social work, kind of no matter who you're working with. But then there are also these big differences, depending on the environment and the context and the politics of the community. So I was operating in the Georgetown Public Library as a single branch system. So just the one library in the whole city It's a city of about 80,000. So to me, that's that's a small city. I grew up in Houston, Texas. So <laughs> so 80,000 people seems like small to me. But I was brought on, I think, really to just try to answer questions um, when those questions answered lied outside the walls of the library, right? Yeah. People come to library seeking information, of course. And a lot of the time that, that that information, those answers are contained within the walls of the library. Where do I find this book? How do I use the computer? Yeah. Can you help me with this research, et cetera? But more and more folks are coming to public libraries around here asking about health insurance or pro bono legal aid or emergency shelter or you know what yeah. have you. And so what I came to really, no one ever told me this is what your job is, right? Because my boss was a librarian, Mm -hmm. um, not a social worker. So I kind of figured out over time that my job was really to try and answer those questions when the answers were outside the walls of the library. And myself and my colleagues around the country, who are also library social workers, were of course talking about this emerging practice area and kind of what's working, what's not. And we kind of came to make a decision together that it's really best practice 
for library social workers to primarily uh, focus on information and referral, trying to to say, please continue coming to the library. Please continue checking in with me, accessing these resources that you need. But if you need therapy, if you need medication management, if you need ongoing job coaching, Mm -hmm. that stuff really needs to come from the community if possible, right? Folks, libraries who are in very rural areas have a, have a, lot of challenges here. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who are in urban or or suburban areas, we're really trying to focus on on referring folks out to receive Mm -hmm. services, but inviting them to to continue coming to the library. So it's this kind of weird flavor of service because it's not therapy and it's not exactly case management even, Mm. right? These folks are patrons, they're not clients. But when you see somebody, you know, four or five days a week and you get to know them at that level, it, it starts to feel case management ish. Um, But we were really trying to establish a separation. You know, the library, despite the fact that it is becoming more like a community center, and despite the fact that it does have um, a social worker in it, perhaps it's still a library. It's not Mm -hmm. a nonprofit. It's not a social service center. And so let's try and keep the library doing what it does, but giving people information beyond what a library has typically done. So I can see how some of the traditional methods or practices in social work, like you said, case management, doesn't quite fit. And so you're having to figure out, okay, so what what is this unique or distinct form of practice for library social work? And it sounds like you were pretty well connected to other library social workers to help figure this out. Yeah, I think I think something that I am very lucky and privileged to have been able to do in addition to everything that I just described, which is mm. that's what I was hired to do. But what I ended up doing a lot of additionally, was talking to folks such as yourself, yeah. um, because as there's a lot of interest in this concept. Among social workers, there's interest in the concept of library social work. But among library employees, there's a lots and lots and lots of interest in becoming trauma-informed, creating yeah. an anti-racist library, and things like that. And so in addition to all of kind of the day-to-day on the ground stuff that I just described, I became very connected to the library social work community here in the States and increasingly across the world, which is just bananas to me. Um, But uh, because I was, those women that I mentioned earlier took me under their wing and asked me to co-present with them at a conference and things just kind of taken off. And so I've been able to do a lot of advocacy work through training, through talks like this one, through writing and that sort of thing. So that has, that ended up taking up uh, more and more of my time after about 2018 or Mm. so. The social work the library social work community here in the States is probably about, it's hard to track exactly, but I think it's probably about 40 to 50 systems right now. Uh, and then of course it's spreading to Australia. And I just, someone just forwarded me a link. Things like this are starting to happen in Scotland. And Oh, fabulous. I think, I think it's just a matter of time before the idea really yes, yep. blows up. Well, when Karen and Sabine were telling me about your presentation and that, cause that just for some further background, they held a symposium at the end of last year about libraries and social workers and libraries was included in that. And, and you presented and as they were talking and their excitement about how that went. It was a great event. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this has been such a blind spot in some ways for me. It was like, why weren't social workers say in libraries 10, 15 years ago? Because they have been changing so much, particularly with going online. I, I remember probably 15, 10, 15 years ago when everyone apparently had a Kindle that was saying, you know, libraries will be dead mm-hmm. because everyone's just, and it's like, well, actually not. If anything, they are bigger than and better than ever because they have been transforming into these 
community hubs. Yeah, just to me now, I'm like, oh my gosh, it makes sense that social workers can be there on the ground mm-hmm. at the at the front line of meeting with members of the public. Yeah, and I think you know a lot. I hear over and over and over again from librarians and library employees. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a social worker because, as I think you and I have discussed before, public libraries are one of the only places where people can just go be, you know, yes. and not and not be expected to spend money. Yep, it's free. Um, and so, of course, a lot of people who have nowhere else to go, who have nowhere else safe to go, who live out in the elements and all sorts of different reasons are, are coming to libraries. And so I think that there is a disproportionate amount of just human struggle within public libraries. And so I, I do I do think it, it makes it makes a lot of sense for us to be there. And, and I think you and I could speculate for a long time about why it took so long for us to get in there. But one thing that I don't know if I'd call it a challenge exactly, it's it's a culture that needs tweaking, perhaps, is that a lot of library scientists want to be able to solve the problems themselves, right? Librarians Mm -hmm. are are experts of expertise, if that makes sense. Like they can almost become an expert in something. You're like, I need help with this thing. And then an hour later, they come back to you and they've learned all sorts of different stuff. And so- They are brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and so there are these stereotypes as well of, of librarians that we're all familiar with, right? Like cats and glasses and sweaters and introverts and all of that sort of thing. And of course, that's a caricature, but there is this culture that says we can do it right? Yes. We, we can figure this out. We can create our own food pantry. We can create our own uh, trauma-informed practices. We can create our own this and that. And and although I admire the determination in there, I think that the library, the library community is kind of struggling with this realization. Of, well, it's like within the, within the industry, within the community, there's some people who are saying libraries are, are about books and, and that's that, and we don't need to be interdisciplinary. And then you have often a younger demographic of information professionals saying, no, we need to bring in outside professionals and we need to be interdisciplinary and it's about more than books. Yeah. And so I think that, and of course you can guess like which of those two are, are in power right now. Right. Mm, mm. And so you're seeing this kind of conflict. And I think that may also speak to why we've seen kind of a slow adoption of social work within libraries, whereas we've been in schools and hospitals and so forth for, yeah, for, for longer, more time. Yeah. I'm interested then in how those, that sort of those power dynamics and the things that you've witnessed translated into certain challenges you faced in some ways, like I've often thought, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when you get into a whole new field or a new position, that can be both exciting as well as scary. Cause you're like, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what's yeah. expected of me. But then sometimes when people don't know, it's like, well, I can perhaps then influence that more. And that's where the exciting part comes in, where you can craft the position to mm-hmm. mean something. I mean, was it like that for you in going into this position, but you had to manage, you know, there, there would have been certain views by your employers, like the librarians of, well, this is what you should be doing, Patrick, not this right. or that. Like, yeah, just tell me a little bit more about the challenges you faced in clarifying the role or doing Mm -hmm. the role with those power dynamics at play. I I kind of think of that, those problems as kind of micro and macro. And the micro problems were less pervasive. You know, when I first started, it was, I would have very well-intentioned library staff coming to me and saying, um, you know, there's somebody in the lobby and I think they're homeless. And I would say, well, you know, have they approached you? Mm. Have they asked for me? 
what are they doing? You know, that sort of thing. And the staff would say, oh, no, I haven't talked to them. I just thought you should know. And of course, I've written a paper called The Library as a Protective Factor a few years ago. And in that paper, I talk about, you know, for people who are on the margins of society, people experiencing homelessness, people with severe mental illness and so forth, they need the library. Because as you know, the heat here in Texas, much like in Australia, can can kill you. And so if I go out and I essentially approach someone based on their appearance and say, hey, you look like you're having a really hard time. I'm a social worker. And they go, let me help you. <laughs> yeah. And, and they go basically like, screw you. Like, right. <laughs> they are you. less likely to come back to the library tomorrow. And in a city which only has one library mm. and no emergency shelters and no place with heat and AC and water and all of that sort of stuff where you don't have to buy anything, me approaching them puts them in real danger. Yes. And so helping the library staff to understand and that just because I'm not like running out the, into the lobby to go approach every single person who appears to be having some kind of struggle doesn't mean that I'm not doing my job. Right. So yes. help, helping them understand that that we work with people who want to work with us when we talk about a right to self-determination. Right. These mm -hmm. are things that they don't talk about this in library school. Right. And a lot of library employees never went to library school. Some what we call here in Texas library assistants who are the people who staff the service desks most of the time may only have a, a, a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And so helping folks who may not have a lot of experience, helping folks who have a lot of experience, right, that who are very confused by my presence was kind of a constant coaching thing. And there were, there were some opportunities for me to do uh, formal training of staff, but there was a lot more kind of informal coaching, you know. Kind yeah. Of, and daily you know, conversations. Yeah. Just chit chatting with people in the break room. Like, how did you handle that? What would you do different? That sort of thing. I think as far as the power dynamics, what was challenge, what the most challenging thing is that I think is mirrored in a lot of other library social workers' experiences, unfortunately, is that uh, library administrators don't really know what they're getting into when they hire us. Yeah, I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think, as you and I have discussed, I think a lot of them fail to grasp what it means to, to become interdisciplinary. And a lot of them are unaware that social workers have their our own codes of ethics that are different than uh, library codes of ethics. In the States, the American Library Association has its own code and the National Association of Social Workers has its own code. And mm. they play nice for the most part, but there are areas that that conflict. For yeah. example, the NASW code says that social workers absolutely must stand against oppression and racism. And the ALA code says libraries must be politically neutral. And so you can see that in certain communities, including mine, which is conservative, and I don't, for those of you who are following the politics in the states, you know, even certain, the word anti-racism is considered political in my yeah. community. And so there are potential conflicts there. And so I think that, and of course, we're also pushing the library to consider its own role in uh, re-traumatizing the community, re-traumatizing people of color. How do we account for our history of doing that? How do we change it? How do we hire folks in a trauma-informed way? How do we develop an anti-racist collection? What do we need to change about our culture to be more welcoming, not only to the public, but to staff who are not of the dominant demographic? Those are uncomfortable questions for all of us, but they're certainly uncomfortable for people who aren't social workers, right? And so yes. I think that a lot of us in the early stages of this practice area have been kind of been sidelined by administrators and they get into what I call the um, the slow cooker model of library social work. So slow cookers or crock pots, I'm not sure what you call them. Yes, yeah, slow cookers is the common. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 
So if you're like me, I like to cook. If you're like me, you have a slow cooker and it probably lives in the very, very back of your cabinet, right? And you get it out three, four times a year when you're making chili or, you know, roasting a big cut of pork or whatever. You've got a tough cut of meat that's going to sit in there for six hours and you just set it and forget it. It solves the problem and you come back and finish dinner. And what I think a lot of libraries do with social workers is similar. They kind of stick us in a corner and say, here, you handle all the mental illness, you handle all the homelessness, you keep them away from my li- my real library staff. Yes. Right? You come out, you handle that tough problem, right? And then when that's over, you go back into the cabinet. But <laughs> But when you have invo- when you have invited another discipline, a master's level dis- discipline, right, mm. um, into your uh, institution, what I I consider that an invitation that says we want you to be here to help reshape the nature of our work. We want your input on how we do library, how we do libraries, right? We realize we need to change. We brought you on to do that, but then what? Instead, they stick us in the cabinet, and we're not typically. Some people are, but most of us are not involved in hiring, training, policy development, yes. and, and so forth. And so what I would really like to see is the, the people with the power in library systems buy in mm-hmm. to this, this practice area, buy into trauma-informed libraries, buy into anti-racism. And I understand that that is a tricky, and in some states here in the, here in the United States, a big ask. It's very scary, mm-hmm. with good reason, to a lot of a lot of library administrators because there's funding on the line and yes. FTEs on the line. And, you know, we're dealing with book censorship. I mean, basically just 21st century book burning, in my opinion, yeah. Yeah. here. And so there's there's good reason for folks to be nervous. But, you know, in my in my mind, it's like, if not now, then when? There are no shortage of troubling threats to valuable areas of our cultures around the world right now. And libraries are one of those things that there are Lots of powerful people who would love to do away with public libraries, and that is an existential threat, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And so, if if not if if now is not the time to be courageous, then I don't know when. The time is never right. There's a famous quote. I can't remember who it is. Yeah, the conditions are never right, but you've got it. So mm-hmm. you've got to do it anyway. Right. But I imagine it's your job would have been could have been on the line because there's funding attached. You know, mm-hmm. you know, for certain times. So that could have been used as a bit of a a stick in a way to go, well, if you're just not going to do what we want you to do. Right. Well, that did, that, it, that, <laughs> that did happen to me in my next job. Really? Oh, yeah. I worked for the state of Texas for a year. Okay. I don't so know those, if you knew that. It, yeah. No, no, no. So this is another job after the first one. Yeah. I, I left the Georgetown Public Library and I went to the, st- mm. the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. And I was, in a, again, a new role called a community resilience consultant, the first of its kind in the country, to my wow. knowledge. First at a state, first so, first library social worker at a state institution. It was also grant funded. But anyway, long story short, I was told four months after I arrived that I should start looking for a new job. <laughs> Were you expecting that? No. It just I sort was of not. all of a sudden you're going about your job and you're told, mm. well, I had to the state of Texas communications department was not a big fan of some of the terminology I was using in my presentations, yeah. white supremacy, anti-racism. They they felt that the phrase self-reflection was too spicy. The term self-reflection point, yeah, was too yeah. spicy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think they said, well, this makes it sound personal as if people need to change something about themselves. And I said, it is personal and they do need to change something <laughs> about themselves. But anyway, um, so you can see the reality of trying to do this work I, in a substantive way when there's 
such a political environment is is very difficult. And and I tend to kind of just lay it out there. And that makes a lot of people, I think, kind of nervous. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you you're walking a tightrope. And mm. yeah, it's it's a real tricky balance. But honestly, it's um, I mean, your stories kind of resonate with so many other fields of practice where social workers have to walk tightropes. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. not new in the sense of we're often uh, called on to go up against power um, struggles um, or power dynamics mm-hmm. because yeah we're there we are there to deal with um, or try and address oppression and or bring about community level change in this case and, but it's funny when you're talking about even some of your micro level work around they want you to come out of your hole mm-hmm. and do a little bit of stuff, sort of get things back under control and then go back in your hole. That's exactly the kind of conversation I was having with my friend in an earlier episode that'll come out on hospital social work, how sometimes Mm -hmm. it's still like that here in Australia Mm -hmm. where doctors or nurses don't necessarily know what social workers do. It's slowly shifting, but, you know, you're talking about a librarian noticing someone outside who they think is homeless. It's common for a nurse to ring up the social going, Mm -hmm. someone's crying, come deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the yeah. only time they want us is when we've got to kind of clean up the tears or, yeah, clean up people and, and put them back in so we can keep going on our merry way. But they're in for a bit of a shock when they <laughs> finally discover that's not just what we do. That's not what right. we're here to do or how we yes. do it. Yeah. And that's yeah. definitely been, I mean, you can hear that's happened to me and, and many of my friends and colleagues around the country here in the States. So if any of our listeners were wanting to go into library social work, what kind of advice would you be giving to them, you know, to manage all of that, but to get the most out of working in this field? Well, it's tough because there's not a lot of jobs. And so I've heard, I've heard of social workers kind of essentially cold calling library systems and yeah. saying, hey, I'm I'm interested in this practice area. I don't know if you knew about it. Here's a here's an article. Would you like to chat sometime? Um, so I like that confidence, <laughs> right? I know. Now, of course, libraries, much like nonprofits, are are underfunded and and understaffed here in the states. So your your mileage may vary on the success of. You're going to be like making that. a lot of calls. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're lucky enough to to find one, I think that a lot of the questions that I would be asking in in uh, an interview or or in just figuring out if this is for me would be around the kind of things I've been been saying. Like, what are your expectations for this position? Yeah. Right. Because if they say something about ending homelessness in our community, right, that's that tells you that their expectations are unrealistic. Mm. Um, I would be asking them if if this is a new position or if this has been filled by someone in the past, and if they if it had been filled by someone in the past, you know, why they leave? I would want to know what um, leadership roles this this job might be able to take on again, as far as hiring, policy development, that sort of thing. I think trying to get out of that slow cooker model, right? Mm. Are they are they considering how they're going to integrate this position into the overall functioning of the library? Yes. Um, yep. One that I think is easy to overlook, but very important is where am I going to office? Where am mm. I supposed to meet with people? Because I never had an office on the floor of the library. And that was a real challenge, trying to find places that were confidential and yet would also try to be seen by the patrons so that they knew Mm -hmm. I was there. That's that's a tricky thing to do. And I think that they need, ideally, they're thinking about, you know, how are we going to position, literally, physically position the social worker in the building so that they can have access to both the public and privacy, Mm -hmm. right? And and that can be tricky for, for, um, 
again, underfunded libraries, if they're looking at putting in an, a new office, you know, yeah, yeah. Or putting or if, a desk in the middle of it where there's right. no privacy at all. Yeah. I mean, I had to, I was talking to folks outside and in classrooms and all sorts of different things when I was in the library. Anyway, that's, that's, the, those are a few things just for starters. I'd also definitely ask them about what trauma-informed means to them. Yes. Um, yeah. And depending on, on the answer to that question, that will also tell you a lot. I think those are great questions just because, again, because it is relatively new, this field of practice. So just getting a sense of what the library sees and the role as being or taking shape and then how you see yourself fitting in with that or not. What about um, those who are in their positions who are trying to navigate, you know, really tricky dynamics, any particular advice you'd give them? Yes. First and foremost is to reach out to me. You can Mm. that. please feel free to give out my email address. It's in the show notes. Yes, um, absolutely. You, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to a group here in the States called Whole Person Librarianship, which has a, an email listserv. There are a group of folks who used to be affiliated with the Public Library Association here in the States uh, who get together online. As far as I know, that's still happening. But anyway, reach out to other library social workers because in my experience and in the experience of many of people that I know, it's, it's a very isolating practice area. Or it can be, because if if you're the only social worker in the building, if you're the only social worker in the library system, when I was working in at, at Georgetown, I was the only social worker, first and only social worker ever on city staff. Mm. So there's not really a lot of people to shop cases, staff cases with, like, yeah, and just yeah. kind of talk shop. Am I acting ethically? Do I have any blind spots here? Um, what am I missing? That yeah. sort of thing. And also just the isolation of not having anyone around who's operating with a similar educational and ethical background can be really hard. Yeah. Um, so if you feel like, if you feel like you're swimming upstream, and your administration's not getting it and they're sticking you in the slow cooker corner and no one else on staff is a social worker, it, you can see how this can lead to burnout really fast. Yeah. And so I think my first and biggest piece of advice to anyone who is doing this work already is to, if you have not done so, please reach out to the rest of the library social work community because yeah. you are not alone. <laughs> and and yes. we've been there, we've been through a lot of that stuff, but, but it really, I can't tell you how much it helps to talk to other people and go like, this is really difficult and frustrating. And they go, yeah, tell me about it. And you go, oh, okay, good. I'm so, not the only one. I'm not going exactly. crazy. Yeah. Exactly. You really do need like-minded people, but also like-minded people who can be like a, um, I mean, in the critical reflection world, we talk about having a critical friend, someone who Mm -hmm. can really help you tease out, yeah, the difficulties, but do that constructive feedback as well. And Mm -hmm. yeah, just all of it. And that also preserves, I'm all about professional identity. That's my main research area. All of that links to maintaining and sustaining Mm -hmm. your professional identity as a social worker, especially when you are, yeah, you're not working in a social work team, um, or a like-minded team necessarily. So we need to, we need community. We need our sense of belonging with other social Definitely. Best possible advice I think you could give. <laughs> That's fabulous. Patrick, the, let's go to our last question then um, for today. I feel like I could talk to you all day about library <laughs> so, and all the cases and the, the, the ethics and the nuances. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. And you've been a pioneer multiple times now going into Georgetown, like you said, as well as the state of Texas and faced a lot of challenges. So pulling all this together, the central theme of season one uh, for the podcast is what is social work? So do you think after everything you said, you can give us just a one sentence answer without all the 
academic and professional jargon. Yes, but I'm going to give kind of a like preface to it. Fair um, enough. So, so I, I teach at the University of Texas, and at the end of each semester, I give my classes an opportunity to ask me anything they want about uh, my career or tattoos in the workplace or how using your cell phone after hours or whatever. Yeah, pick your and, brain, uh, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, almost every semester, there's some version of, of, you know, if you could do anything differently or do you regret going into social work or that sort of thing. And so I'll tell you what I tell my students, and that is that I love what I do because to me... Social work is the opportunity to live my values every day. Yeah, our jobs are hard and I complain about my job and all that sort of stuff. But the work, for me, the work is bigger than a job. Social work allows me the opportunity to to do the work every day, to live my values every day. And that to me is is a real honor. Uh, that's what that's what social work is to me. I love that. That's see, that's the philosopher in you coming out. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting very existential to me. Like that's oh, about yeah. purpose. Yeah. What's your sense of purpose? I reflect on that a lot myself because if I don't feel the purpose, I don't feel like doing it. And yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah I feel very lucky like to that. have stumbled into this profession. Yeah. And I've, for my PhD, um, I interviewed newly qualified social workers and quite a few of them talked about that as well, that social work is, it's more than a job. Like the mm-hmm. job is only one part of it. It's there's those vocational elements to it. Like some of them, you just feel like you find home for yourself personally and professionally. It all comes together. So mm-hmm. I think your definition captures that beautifully. I love it. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us uh, yes. and telling us more and, and sharing your email. And and I will also, I've included in the show notes, a few other links for people to follow up because you have blogged, you have written, you have presented, you've got a great you know, there's YouTube stuff. So people can really just listen to you all day if they wanted to. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, but thank you once again. You've been doing quite a lot of this stuff, you know, um, sharing it. and But I think it's, it will resonate with people for a very long time as we get more and more social workers into libraries and, and see where it goes, what, what yeah. real social change we can achieve. Yeah. Here's yeah. hoping. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We keep trying. <laughs> Indeed we do. Thanks, Patrick. We'll leave things there. All right. Thanks, Bernadette. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. You are most welcome to get in touch and tell me what you gained from the show. You'll find my website details and email in the episode notes. Be sure to check out the notes for other links that you can follow up for further learning and development. While you were there, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the next episode. And feel free to rate and review the podcast so we can reach a wider audience. See you next time in the Social Work Cafe.